Welcome to London's New York. To begin this episode, Dan and I went to a place a lot of tourists might not think to visit when they come to Brooklyn. Greenwood Cemetery, just south of Prospect Park. It's enormous, and like everywhere in New York, it's a monument to a kind of close communal existence. Strangers from all backgrounds pushed up next to each other in eternity, just like they were in life. Love this. Vitaly and Ryerson with their their crosses and angels, and then behind is Zheng with Chinese characters. Solomon, Rota, Zheng, March. Bochco. I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, these are some pretty recent ones, and they're living together in Komati. We came here, though, to visit one grave in particular, the final resting place of one of the most famous and quintessential New Yorkers, the great conductor and composer, Leonard Bernstein. Glad she has some stones, too. Wow. Well, I mean, we don't really have a uh, cemetery in Paris where we have Jim Morrison and uh, Oscar Wilde in this, and where there's all these traditions around leaving things on the tomb. Uh, in the Jewish tradition, you leave stones, but I'm very happy to see people have left guitar picks uh, with Leonard Bernstein over here. The great, the writer of what I think is New York's uh, secular Talmud, uh, West Side Story. Um, for New Yorkers, I think of a certain generation born in the 30s or 40s. I mean, this was the great promise of American life and of city life, New York in particular, of a place where differences could be potentially reconciled. And in every single way, the musical is about reconciliation. It's not only about between races, whites and Puerto Ricans, or reconciliation between Shakespeare and modern prose, Shakespeare and slang, reconciliation between jazz, popular music, and Broadway, and in fact, classical music, because of course Bernstein started in classical music. Reconciliation between the worlds of art, theater, and music, um, choreography. I mean, this was really this kind of melting pot of a musical, and I mean, for me, to insult that musical is like insulting America, basically, or at least the vision of what America could be. and Or at least New York. Or at least New York. I mean, is it was it a promise that was never realized? Was it a promise that was realized once and we need to go back to? Or as Bruce Springsteen sings, you know, is, some, is something a lie when, it's, when it doesn't come true, or is it something worse, right? Or was it just our self-deceptions to begin with? And West Side Story, it's... Such It has such a deep hold on Jewish liberals, I think, and on liberals more generally. 
and you compare it to Hamilton and where people are doing the exact same things. I guarantee you the same people who love West Side Story are the same people who adore Hamilton now. Maybe, maybe they might have quibbles with the style of music, but that same sort of thing where it's an instrument of reconciliation between hip-hop and musical theater, between the black experience and the white experience, between history and today, it still has that promise of understanding built into it. I'm glad that there's something so cogent, so well put together that liberals can point at and say, this is what I stand for. And, uh, you know, for me, that is sort of what I stand for. And it is sort of the scripture that I'll challenge, that I'll chafe against, I'll rub against, but I always do so from a sort a background of there's more right than wrong with this vision. I think the promise of it, especially in that song somewhere, uh, it still moves my mom's to tears every time she hears it, I'm sure many other people, you know, this idea that there's a place for us. Though it's interesting, you know, this part of the lyrics are peace and quiet and open air. That's not what you're going to find in New York. You're going to find that in the suburbs or the cemetery. So maybe we could think Marie and Tony did wind up finding peace and quiet and open air if they're buried together in Greenwood, perhaps. Let's listen to a little bit of that song. Here's a 2001 recording by the Nashville Symphony Orchestra with Betsy Morrison singing the role of Maria. There's a place for us Somewhere a place for us Peace and Bernstein. Right. I invoke his name and spirit. So let's talk about that, that yeah. cosmopolitan paradigm, because it'd be hard to think of a better icon of that than Bernstein, right? Yes. And he's, I mean, I know he's really, you know, a personal hero of yours and somebody you really admire that he's both, a, you know, a, a keeper of this European classical tradition and also a pioneer of... Broadway and and these you know popular forms and you know and he was a, an intellectual and a socialite and a I mean he's even bisexual he's so mm-hmm. everything that he's he's everything you yeah know? like yeah I mean he in so many ways is an exemplar of being able to form bridges between communities or paradigms that seem like they're endlessly conflicting classical music and Broadway the old world and the new world, Jewish culture and other cultures. There's a sort of message of tolerance there that differences can be reconciled somewhat smoothly with enough empathy. The The, the route forward is empathy, putting yourself in another person's shoes. So to contextualize um, Leonard Bernstein's activities, New York City at this time is still in a kind of post-war glow of affluence and redevelopment, at least for certain people. There's urban renewal happening. There's a huge public housing program. Highways are being built. There's 
the gigantic new Lincoln Center is being constructed during the mid-1950s. And Bernstein is able to tap into this sort of post-war energy and funding uh, in a way that few conductors or composers have before. He's being enriched through state munificence to the arts, through private philanthropies, many of them sort of enriched by Jewish donors. Um, and he's able to um, promote this new sort of modern, prestigious New York, not just in the city and the country, but on these amazing global tours. He goes out to Eastern Europe and Russia, uh, where he's adored by many people coming over there. But at the same time, um, West Side Story is in response to very pressing domestic issues around race, around juvenile, quote, delinquency, around the still existing and spreading issues of the, the quote, slums of inner city life. I mean, it was still somewhat radical to do. And at the same time, he's teaching like no one has ever taught before. Yeah, I, th this is where I think it, it all comes together in a sense. With, with, with his work as a teacher. With his work as a teacher, I think. Um, teaching was fundamentally at the core of his being. And the way you can get at this is look at the omnibus uh, documentaries that he did in the mid-50s and look at the series on um, musical education for young people that he did through Lincoln Center. These recordings are online. And he's able to, in precise, evocative, elegant uh, language, describe how music works and the emotional and political and aesthetic dimensions of it. I mean, I'll never forget, like, the very first uh, young person's guide to music that he does, he says, well, you know, what is music? Um, is it just individual notes? No. If you just played one note on a keyboard and left it at that, um, that's not music. But when you play two notes, a music, you know, a note that's low and then a note that's high or vice versa, it's the relation between those notes that music is. You see, notes aren't like words at all. Because if I say one single word all by itself to you, like rocket, immediately you have an idea. You see a picture in your mind. Rocket, bang, picture. But if I play a note, one note all alone, that means nothing. It's just a plain old F sharp or a B flat. A sound, that's all, higher or lower, louder or softer. A sound was can seem able very to if convey I in it, his teaching this or if real... I sing it, or if an oboe I mean, it, it's, it's not enough, you know, it sounds facile when I say it's joy, but I'm going to just get a quote from him that conveys this. So here's what he says. I can do things in the performance of music that if I did on an ordinary street would land me in jail. I can get rid of all kinds of tensions and hostilities. By the time I come to the end of Beethoven's Fifth, I'm a new man. And when we relate this to liberalism, the idea of liberalism in this sort of social version is that people can grow, people can change through communication by being exposed to new ideas. And Bernstein believes this can happen through music and art. And the joy that he gets from teaching in so, in so many ways, and I think you get this when you're a teacher, is when you're seeing people changed through the music, through the lessons you're conveying. 
And he has this faith in both art being able to do this and also politics being able to do this. I mean, you know, we're going to get more into his politics maybe in a bit, but Bernstein, there are four volumes of CIA dossier files on Bernstein from all the communist front sort of organizations he was involved in the 40s and 50s, not even talking about the 60s yet. So he isn't one of these, you know, only art can save us romantics, let's say, but he also wasn't one of these technocratic only policy and policy wonks can save us. He really felt you could do both. You know, where is that kind of liberalism today where we have people who have a very precise notion of cultural change that can save us, and at the same time are involved in social movement justice. Um, an example I'd like to think is Lin-Manuel Miranda. We'll talk more about that later. But one of the things I like about Bernstein is his commitment to his belief that both art and politics can save us, and he's has this wonderful audience for, with which to do that. For a, for a moment, a person like him could be on CBS and dispense this lesson to, to everyone. We'll be right back after these messages. If you're enjoying this show, you might also like some of the other podcasts on Race Car Radio. For instance, you might try Mind Your Own Business with Mike and Matt. Do you own or run your own company? I'm a small business owner, and let me tell you, it's a lot harder than I thought it would be. But never fear, we're here to help. On Mind Your Own Business, Mike Gansel and Matt Plosiak, two brilliant consultants with decades of experience between them, take real questions from real small business owners and give them answers that help put them on the track to success. It's smart, funny, informative, and we promise it will help you make your company the best it can be. Listen and subscribe now to Mind Your Own Business with Mike and Matt at racecarradio.com. Race Car Radio is proud to support the work of IO Worldwide, a tenacious and dedicated organization working to address the root causes of poverty in West Africa. Because they believe that who a person is and where they come from should not solely determine what they are able to achieve. To learn about their work and how you can support it, please visit ayaworldwide.org. And now back to London's New York. Now, you talked a little while ago about Lincoln Center as being, the building of Lincoln Center as being the, the sort of apotheosis of this big urban renewal of the period. And and that was the seat of Bernstein's power, right? That was mm-hmm. the throne on which he sat to disper- But ironically, wasn't the neighborhood that they bulldozed to build Lincoln Center the very neighborhood that's being described in West Side Story? Exactly. It's being described there, but it was also filmed there. That's the irony. So Lincoln Center's, um, the site of Lincoln Center, uh, what used to be called San Juan Hill, um, was the filming location for West Side Story. So On the one hand, Bernstein is focusing on the social problems of the street. He's trying to depict the lived experience, the real pressing social issues of working class tenement house New York City, on the one hand. On the other hand, he is sort of uh, complicit in the destruction of that neighborhood uh, by assuming the mantle of sort of the, the head of Lincoln Center, the head of the New York Philharmonic. And this is part of the... um. 
the, the irony of post-war liberalism, right? It's about acting in the interest of the working class and at the same time sort of destroying their communities beyond recognition. Um, whether that's inherent to this kind of liberalism, whether it was an oversight, you know, that's up for debate. But it's an enormous irony that... Um, Bernstein is sort of ascendant upon the ruin of his own inspiration, let's say. And maybe, you know, maybe we could bridge from there to the, the, one of the sort of defining negative moments of Bernstein's career, which mm. is this, and, and maybe a great example of this kind of what people who are opposed to liberalism see as sort of liberal thoughtlessness mm-hmm. of of stepping into something without really looking where you're stepping, and maybe a good example of that is this this famous dinner he gave for the Black Panthers. So in 1970, Leonard Bernstein uh, hosted the Black Panthers at his place in the Dakota Building, this very ritzy uh, structure on the Upper West Side. And uh, to his great misfortune, uh, Tom Wolfe wrote a great expose on it from the New York Magazine. And and you read the article, and there's a lot of very cringe-inducing moments. Uh, let's assume that Wolfe was being accurate. You know, there's these discussions uh, between Bernstein and his wife about what color the servant should be. There's... Uh, snickering at the outer borough officials who have come over to this party. Uh, There's discussions of the Black Panthers' fashion and how cool and natural their hair is. I mean, it's really gruesome stuff. And it basically invented uh, the idea of radical chic, the idea of the liberal, the elite in Manhattan trying to slum it with the poor to get their uh, political rocks off. Um, Could it have been an uh, attempt to communicate? I think it could have been an attempt to communicate. It could have been an honest liberal attempt to communicate. But what seems like an honest liberal attempt to communicate on from one person could seem like the essence of snobbery to the other. Uh, and it did to Tom Wolfe and to many others. You know, it's a it's a it's a a term, liberal liberalism that's fraught. And how how do you define that term in this context? What does that mean to you? Well, I think there's um, fundamentally many strands of liberalism. I think the muscular version that emerged in New York had its roots in the struggles of African Americans, many women, and many labor unions who saw the limits that a strictly, quote, neutral, hands-off state uh, could provide them in the way of social support and access to real freedom. And it found its intellectual justifications in the writing of John Stuart Mill and especially John Dewey in the late 19th century. The idea that the primacy in politics should be individuals, and that all uh, politics should be ultimately down to the consent of individuals, but that individuals are social creatures. And according to this social liberalism vision that I'm talking about, freedom is not just freedom from coercion. Freedom is the ability to do certain things. And people who are poor, who can't afford housing, people who are at the mercy of their employers, are not as free 
as other people. And so freedom is also the ability to do something. And just as public housing or a social safety net, um, that gives people the ability or the opportunity to be more able to live their lives fully, let's say. And those have cultural implications too. And I think one of the things that Bern, you know, discussing Bernstein brings up are the ways that liberalism can have these cultural outlets in the form of, let's say, conducting an orchestra piece or writing a piece of music. You can infer from those kind of musical pieces and their reception politics. Um, being exposed to and having the ability to encounter classical music or other forms of music or opinions or culture is doing something similar. It's giving the opportunity to enrich your life. If, um, if there's a criticism, well, if when there's a criticism of liberalism, which there often is these days, I think maybe it comes from an idea that it's paternalistic, that in a way that, you know, by saying, I'm going to save the world through my art and through my political movements, one that the world is something broken and it you uh, uh, broken that needs to be fixed, and there are parts of the world that don't like that idea that there there's something that's broken and needs to be fixed, and also that you, the person who is writing that piece of art, has the key by which you're going to fix it. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I, I I'm playing devil's advocate here because. You know, I consider myself a liberal, and I, and I admire the hell out of Leonard Bernstein. But I think he he's also undoubtedly one of the great egomaniacs of the history mm-hmm. of the world. And I mm-hmm. think for a lot of people who don't like liberals, who don't like New Yorkers, mm-hmm. who don't mm-hmm. like that's mm-hmm. the reason is they think we're full of ourselves and we know better than them and we're trying to tell them how to live their lives. And I'm wondering how you'd respond to that in relation that's, to... That's, that's terrific. I mean, you know, you look at like the NPR rate, you know, shows or the PBS 13 shows, Masterpiece Theater, and God knows, yes, it sounds like it's this complete um, talking down, let's say, or you don't get it, right? And... So what's the alternative? Do you say that, let's say, classical music is rarefied and not for everyone to get? Or do you communicate it um, in a way that's very didactic? This is art and you should like it. You should eat your vegetables. Well, I think for Bernstein, what made it okay or better in some ways, when, at his best, let's say, is vulnerable joy that he was exposing to other people uh, in the love of what he was doing. The idea that... Um, a good society should involve growth, uh, and that growth can come through being uh, exposed to new ideas, um, to other opinions, to other groups, and that growth um, doesn't just happen by people being left alone. It happens through education, through teaching. So Bernstein is the cultural um, representation of positive liberalism. Boom. You know, the way to not ever get in a situation where Tom Wolfe is calling you out for being culturally insensitive in the way you're hosting the Black Panthers is 
to never take a risk like trying to throw a dinner party for the Black Panthers. Like the way to avoid those things that, that look flat footed and, and you know the the failures is is to is to not try new things and to not attempt personal growth. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe that's the answer is that you know what's great about Bernstein was he was always trying something. He was always trying to push the envelope and trying to trying to do something he hadn't done before and trying to get other people to do things mm-hmm. that they had never done before. Yeah. And if it's one person doing it, I think, then it becomes this sort of egocentric, I'm talking down to you, let's say. And Bernstein could do that, but it's about collective growth. So it means uplifting and empowering other groups to do the same thing back at you. You know, it's this, it is a kind of optimism, there's a place for us somewhere. Yeah. It, it does exist. Yeah. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll bring it... So, to, to connect this to another person who I admire, Walt Whitman, right? You know, Walt Whitman is the this another great spirit of New York, one of my personal heroes, the barbaric yop, I am everyone and everyone is me, you know, a, a sort of Bernstein of the 19th century, let's say. And I have another favorite poet, Auden, who is this, or W.H. Auden, who's this English poet. And he once said of Whitman, you know, no one should read him before the age of 24, uh, sort of talking about how immature some of his hopes and dreams can be. And you, ne- you need both. You need a kind of realism and maturity, and you need this kind of hope. And, uh, you know, I study political history. I know the granular, dry, wonky, as Weber calls it, the hollowing out of dry boards that politics involves, you know. But um, I think the spirit that I'd like to inform this podcast with and the sort of subject of a lot of our discussions to come is going to be testing, exploring the relevance and the possibilities of, uh, of this kind of optimistic vision of liberalism which we've moved away from in the latter part of the 20th century, but that we're now perhaps hopefully moving back towards. So that could be uh, Bernstein's uh, legacy, transmitting that those concerns and those values to a wide audience and in some ways making institutions more responsive to them. I believe that man's noblest endowment is his capacity to change. Armed with reason, he can see two sides and choose. He can be divinely wrong. I believe in man's right to be wrong. Out of this right, he has built laboriously and lovingly something we reverently call democracy. He has done it the hard way and continues to do it the hard way by reason, by choosing, by error and rectification, by the difficult, slow method in which the dignity of A is acknowledged by B without impairing the dignity of C. Man cannot have dignity without loving the dignity of his fellow. The way of dignity and divinity presupposes a belief in people and in their capacity to change, grow, communicate, and love. My name is David Hoffman, and I produce this show. With me, as always, is Daniel London. New episodes of London's New York come out once every two weeks. Never miss one by subscribing to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and all your favorite podcast apps. 
We'd love to hear your feedback and ideas for future episodes. Interact with us on social media at LNY Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. London's New York is a production of Race Car Radio, www.racecarradio.com.